My name is Tony, and I was in a cult for over a decade. And my name is Lindsay, and my sister was in a cult for over a decade. And now I'm out. Lindsay and my family helped get me out, and we have created a podcast. Playing in Traffic. We interview survivors of the Wimscog. We cover topics of healing and topics of all things about cults. So tune in, like, subscribe, whatever all that means, and enjoy the process of deconstruction. Welcome to Playing in Traffic. This is our disclaimer song. This is our disclaimer song. It's our opinion. Don't sue us. Don't sue us. If you didn't want us to make a podcast about you, then you probably shouldn't have started a religion where you brainwashed people and separated them from your family, so it's kind of your fault. But don't sue us. Don't sue us. You know who you are, so don't do it. Don't sue us. Brother, you are my brother. Father, mother, there is no other. B is for the way you believe the Bible. R is for the way you read in the Bible. O is for the way you open the Bible. T is for the way you're teaching the Bible. H is for your heart. That is for the Bible. E is for how you enjoy the Bible. R is for how you um you reread the Bible. Cause that spells brother. You are my brother. Same father, mother. You are my brother. Yeah. Hi guys. I'm Tony. Hello, I'm Lindsay. I'm Lindsay too. And I'm Kelsey. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guys. We have Lindsay, Kelsey, and Anthony with us today on our episode of Playing in Traffic. Pit, baby, we're having a pit party. We're having a pit party. <laughs> it's a Saturday night. We're hanging out. We're talking some history. We're talking some Wimscog false history. Okay, so this one is going to be really fun. Buckle up, buttercups. It's going to be fun. So today we have the experts, Kelsey and Anthony here with us to help us go through some of the history that we were taught in the Wimscog, the World Mission Society Church of God. And it's important for us to understand, um, you know, these studies were ingrained so deeply in us. And this history was taught to us on a daily basis. Every day we were indoctrinated with this history. So we thought that it was true. And we were told that the Internet was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right. So we, we never went to fact check or see anything. But now that we're out. We have access to all this information, and so we're going to kind of go through some of the history that the Wimscog taught us, quote, unquote, and uh, what the real history really was. 
Thank you guys yeah. for being on. We've been asked to do something like this a few times by a few um, listeners. So when we heard that, the call for this episode, we were like, we can't do this without Kelsey and Anthony because they're the ones mm-hmm. who actually know really in depth. So everybody get ready. It's going to be a great episode. Um, I don't know a lot of this either, so I might jump in and ask some questions. Um, and I'm going to kind of I'm going to try to be the person who's from the outside going, well, I don't really understand why this is a big deal. But you guys, you I mean, I know this is like a huge the historical stuff is like really big for a lot of people when they hear it. It's really shocking to them that they were taught something totally different in the church. So thank you guys yeah. for being here. Anthony, what was it called when you said religions take numbers and then they use it to mean something? Well, it wasn't religion. Um, uh, so it's uh, gematria is okay. where you take a uh, a letter and you assign a number to it. Okay. So it was actually a very popular thing that they used to do in the past. Um, it wasn't just done by the Greeks. It was done by the Latins. It was done by the Hebrew text as well. There was um, an association. Like when we see our numbers and we see our letters, they're different. But, you know, in a time, a letter would have a numerical value typically associated with it as well. Yes. Okay. So many Christians are familiar with the mark of the beast, 666. And it's something that, you know, there's all these conspiracies about what it's going to be. Has it already happened? Yada, yada, yada. Well, of course, the Wimscock has their own teaching. Um, this goes with their Daniel and Revelation study. Daniel 2, Daniel 7. 17, and 17 and 18. And pretty much through these studies, which you these are like amazing studies. These are ones that they get you ready for. Right, guys? And yeah, you oh go in God. there, they're like, they're like, get ready. <laughs> You're about to see this amazing prophecy. And so it pretty much kind of like lays out the history of the world, according to them. And it's going to show you who the Antichrist is. So um, do you guys do you guys want to explain that one? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think even deeper is like preparing for it. It's one of those ones where people are like, oh, what's your next study? Oh, Daniel's prophecy. And then they, they're like, wow. And then afterwards, what do you think about Like everyone like makes such a big deal about this study because in uh, the book of Daniel, it, they say that you can learn all of world history through these two chapters and then be led up to understand who is Satan on this earth. And then they're like, and that's just like the black and white version. You can see full color in the book of Revelation. And, you know, they show these different verses to point out who it is. Um, The one that we were just kind of talking about with Gemantria is the uh, prophecy in Revelation 13, which explains about the number 666. And the Wimscog has a a particular definition um, about what 666 is because it says it's the number of the beast and it's a man's number but you know they explain it in a particular way do you do you remember tony exactly what I the remember. uh i remember i <laughs> remember and that the and that the um and that it has to be calculated too yes it's a number that had to be calculated so uh the way that they explain it they Anytime it's about like Satan on earth or Satan's power, Satan's control, 
um, they pointed out to be the Catholic Church. Now, this study, actually, when I was very new, I had um, discovered that the Seventh-day Adventists also teach the exact same study. And being a member who was there only for a short while at that point when I had uh, discovered this, probably within my first couple months, um, they told me, oh, that's because, um, you know, Father An Sang Hong, he brought this truth to the Seventh-day Adventists. And, you know, at that point, you know, they began to steal his teachings and teach it themselves because they were amazed by his truth. But actually, this teaching had been uh, taught since 1866, around that point, uh, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And um, the way that they teach 666 is that they say that the Pope, at his coronation, every Pope gets the same three-tier tiara, which has an inscription inside, six, uh, not 666, <laughs> uh, Vicarious Philly Day, which means the vicar or the uh, substitute for the son of God, the Philly like child of day, you know, God. So through this, they say, look at the letters. V or U is a five, you know, the I is a one, you know, uh, the L is a 50, the C is a hundred, the D is 500, you know, they calculate it in that way. So when you add up Vicarious Philly day, which they claim was in this tiara that the Pope would wear, the number when you add it all up would be 666 and did we ever doubt <laughs> oh hell no and this study was like hours long leading up to it leading up to it leading up to it and then this was the final reveal and it was like oh my god the catholic church is the antichrist the pope is the antichrist and it changes your whole world Oh, this is the study. This is the, the big study that this is a big study. Like the Catholic Church is the because you're like everything mm -hmm. is controlled by the Catholic Church. You've got Christmas, you've got Easter, you've got communion, Sunday, everything. Yeah. Everything is from the Catholic Church, according to them. That's where it comes into the you guys mentioned before on a previous episode about the about the weird terms we use, and this is where baby prostitute comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in this in this study, they teach about the uh, the great prostitute, the Catholic Church, and all the uh, Sunday keeping, cross wearing churches that came out of it, where the Protestant churches are the baby prostitutes. <laughs> but and you know what was interesting? I was doing a little bit of research, and I found that this teaching of this vicarious philodie was taught by a man even since the 1600s. This was like some kind of misconception that had been taught by scholars even before the Seventh-day Adventists. And then it's like the Seventh-day Adventists had it. And then clearly An Sung Hong took it from the Seventh-day Adventists, right? And mm -hmm. then taught it to the Wimscog who, who now claims that it's their truth. Yeah, actually An Sung Hong, uh, he basically, they, they call him the last reformer, but he was more of like a Frankenstein he took a whole bunch of like little pieces from all these different churches. Like his concept of the Trinity was from the Pentecostals, uh, pre-existence in heaven from the Mormons, like, you know, God, the mother, the Mormons were teaching that well before he did, or well, he didn't even teach it before the church of God taught it. And he took all these different uh, aspects from the Moonies, from all these places. And he 
sewed them all together. So he didn't really reform anything so much as, you know, he just put all these pieces together and created a monster. Um, Anthony, but, can you explain about the Seventh-day Adventists and what ended up happening with them when they were yeah. teaching this vicarious day? So what ended up happening with the, um, the Seventh-day Adventists and this teaching, um, so the Catholic Church had a rebuttal, basically saying like, you know, all right, we have every single papal tiara dating back to, you know, this point in the past around Pope Pius, where supposedly this uh, discussion even began. You know, we have all these different uh, tiaras, come and look. You know, they said, come inspect. We have like at least 20 of these crowns on display and you won't find it anywhere. Uh, Vicarious Philly Day has never been an official title of the Pope, ever. And even the Seventh-day Adventist Church, who like really were, were the ones who pushed this prophecy, um, in 1948, there's a publication called The Ministry, which is the official publication of the Ministerial Association of the Seventh-day Adventist. There was an article written by Leroy Edwin Froome, uh, the editor, and he entitled it Dubious Pictures of the Tiara, and he stated in it, each pope, like any other sovereign, has his own tiara, which is the papal crown. There is, therefore, no one tiara that is worn by the full succession of the papal pontiffs. Moreover, personal examination of these various tiaras, because he looked at it himself, by different men back through the years, and a scrutiny of the pictures of many more have failed to disclose one engraved with the inscription Vicarious Philly Day. There is none such definitely known to exist. As heralds of truth, meaning like, you know, these are people who should be proclaiming the truth. We are to proclaim the truth truthfully. No fabrication should ever be cloud our presentation of truth. Recourse to any unreliable and fraudulent evidence discounts the very message that we are commissioned of heaven to give to men and reflects upon the honesty of the messenger. Truth does not need fabrication to aid or support it. Its very nature precludes any manipulation or duplicity. We cannot afford to be party to any fraud. We must honor the truth and meticulously observe the principle of honesty in the handling of evidence under all circumstances. So they published this quote <clears throat> explaining that, you know, the Vicarious Philly Day in a tiara is a lie, and they need to, as an organization, Seventh-day Adventist, they come forward to basically apologize for what they had said and say, we don't need to lie in order to support our truth. However, this stolen message by the Wimscog, they continue to lie to support their message. So you can see that this is completely mishandled by the Wimscog. And even if you look, um, if you take the name Ellen Gould White and you run her name, this you know Seventh-day Adventist prophetess, you run her name through the same thing, you get 666 as well. Are you serious? Yeah. Ellen, the two L's are 50 and 50. 
Gul, there's a the V or the U, the five, the L, the 50, the D, the 500, the W or uh, the double V, depending on how you say it, is five plus five, and the I in white is one. It adds up to 666. Damn. So the founder of St. Church, even her name adds up to 666. I mean, so many peoples could, right? I mean, mm-hmm. an endless amount of things could equal up to 666 if you wanted it to. Yeah, and what's interesting is at the time, gematria was something that was used in a bunch of different cultures. Now, what's interesting is that, like, there was a graffiti in Pompeii, you know, the city that was basically preserved through ash. Someone wrote, like, I'm in love with a woman whose number is 545. That was a graffiti, meaning that you could write some, like, a number that associates to the letters of the person's uh, name. And it was a very common practice back then. In addition, there was um, uh, a poet, uh, Strato of Sardis. He was a Greek poet. And he discovered that the word gold and the word anus had the same numerical value of 1570. So he had that in his notes. And, you know, it was very common, whether you're a scholar or a graffiti artist. Back then, it was very common to associate letters and numbers together. So there's a lot of theories of what 666 actually means. Uh, One of them being Nero. If you look at uh, Nero Caesar, his name, when you convert it to the Hebrew language, it goes into 666. So he's the one who highly persecuted the Christians. So, you know, Revelation often seems like a big battle between the Roman Empire and their persecution of the early Christians. So for Nero's name, to be in there, you know, as the one who fulfills 666, it would make a lot of sense because his name converts to Hebrew, which converts to 666. Wow, that is so fascinating. We would have never got any of that information in the Wenskog. No, because it goes against what they teach. Right. So you guys, they have their own evidence book. And then in that evidence book, they have all of this laid out very clearly. And they have pictures of the statue from Daniel chapter two, you know, the man of with the gold head, you know, so it's all laid out clearly. So you can't really think outside of whatever they're showing you right there. So that's fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter seven. Um, So we were taught a lot about the quote unquote dark ages in a very specific time period that the dark ages would be. And so according to them, the spiritual, physical dark, especially spiritual dark ages is 538 to 1298. Is that correct? Oh, no, I'm 17, sorry, 1798. Okay. So the Dark Ages is from 538 to 1798. And that's when they say, okay, let me just, I'm just going to just blurt this out. You guys will know what this means. Time, times, and half a times. Do you guys remember that? Yes. Nope. Three and yes. a half years. <laughs> Three and a half years. So, so the Bible, Daniel uh, talks about how the Antichrist would take over for that amount of time and would have control over God's people and persecute and kill God's people. And all this is in our evidence book so that we can see, right? Yes. And um, so the start of that is from 538. And they have this whole study about how how the statue's toes were broken up into 10 little pieces. 
yes. 10 little toes and how Europe would be broken up into 10 little pieces. And so I know Anthony's really excited because he did a lot of research today about this. So um, Anthony, can you explain to us about those 10 kingdoms and why, you know, why they were important and, and about a little bit about what you studied about today? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm looking at, at Lindsay a little bit and she's hearing toes and statues. <laughs> it probably just sounds bizarre. But basically uh, at the bottom, th there was a prophecy about a statue and it's supposed to show how different kingdoms will arise. And the last kingdom was supposed to be in, you know, the way that the Wimscog teaches it, Rome. And that Rome will be divided into 10 different kingdoms. But these 10 kingdoms um, out of the 10, according to chapter seven, three of them will be destroyed by a little horn. And, you know, once those three are destroyed, the other seven will remain. The little horn will come, destroy the three. And then that little horn will reign for a time times half a time, three and a half years. Three and a half years is 42 months. There's 30 days in a month. So that's 1,260 days but a day represents a year. So it's 1,260 years. And through all these like gymnastics of explanations, we get to the point where we believe that the devil will have full, both spiritual and uh, like governmental control for 1,260 years. And it's all, you know, explained to be, well, when does the clock start? It starts when that third uh, that third kingdom falls, and there's no other opposition to the Catholic Church. One thousand two hundred sixty years after five thirty eight, which they say Ostrogoths, the last of the three kingdoms, fell. That's going to lead you to seventeen ninety eight, where uh, the French Revolution occurs. The French Revolution is where uh, Napoleon dethrones the Pope. So. You can see how this is a very big prophecy. You know, 1798 is the end goal. So they have to take 1,260 years before it and they get 538. And they say that out of the 10 kingdoms there, you know, that uh, appeared after Rome fell, um, three of them would fall away. And the final one was in 538, and that was Ostrogoths. So before I explain about the Ostrogoths, um, actually, there were a lot more than just 10 kingdoms that uprose after Rome fell. There was a lot of different barbaric Germanic tribes that came into where Rome was, and they moved around. They were from place to place. Wait a minute, though. Dan Daniel's statue only had 10 toes. There could not have been more than 10 kingdoms. Are you telling me there were more than 10 kingdoms? Yeah, there was a bunch of different kingdoms. Well, then that is so crazy. So then that's wrong. Just right there. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Okay. Anyway, from the Lindsay, has a question. <laughs> Lindsay has a question. Yes. Like already going into this, you guys are already explaining why learning the actual history is totally dismantling to your whole teaching. Because if you guys are going that into detail, like just this one. Well, you know what? Okay, it's funny because I, I mentioned I mentioned this earlier. You know, it's. It, it's it's so funny how much they rely on the hope that nobody looks anything up 
because this is all, I mean, it's, it's one thing to look up the history of like Unsung Hong, but it's another thing to look up the history of actual historical events because there's, there's so much information on them and the fact that they just, you know, rely on the fact that nobody's going to look this stuff up. I, I never thought in the 10 years to look any of this up. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me of this, this book I had to read in high school. It's called, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's called Lies My Teacher Told Me. <laughs> where it's like it's like it, it's a it's it's a it's a it's a really good book but it's it's this book like or it takes like many events in like u.s history that were taught in school and then explains what actually happened during that time and so it's this is kind of like what this what this reminds me of is like you know lies my teacher told me lies the whimscog told me <laughs> yeah. hey and that's a great children's book idea guys <laughs> i love that lies the whimscog told me yeah yeah, yeah. Um, story yeah. for children five to nine it, it is so <laughs> shocking that us you guys us a smart you know i don't know i just can't believe that we never looked it up they had so much control over us and so much that fear held us back so much that we were not going to go and be tempted on the internet. We were so afraid what we would find maybe. I don't know. Even if we did look it up, I don't know if, you know, we would have just said to ourselves, oh, you know what? I must be misinterpreting something. I must not understand this correctly, you know, like, and, and just say it, it was this like uh, mechanism I had at least where if something didn't agree with what I was taught, I'm like, you know what? They always explain things to me so well. Like, let, let me just wait for them to explain something. But, yeah. you know, when I look into the, the, you know, all these different kingdoms and what they did, I was actually surprised because they say that there were three different kingdoms that were supposed to fall, um, you know, and that was the the sign that the um, Catholic Church was behind it, that these three different nations were supposed to fall. It was um, the Vandal, Heruli, Vandals, and Ostrogoths. Um, Heruli, actually, when I look up Heruli, it was... I'm very curious to hear the different pronunciations we all learned because i learned a different different pronunciation i did too oh. i did too how do you say it how do you say it Haralite Mandel's ostergos Haralite. i say Haralite too yeah well i'll say it like this um a, a lot of the time we were learning uh we were learning things from the pronunciation that you know from when how we however we read it you know right. and we were learning it from people also who didn't know to say it do you know how many people we were learning it from koreans yeah and you guys i learned because like it, it's funny because i learned yeah we learned from koreans but also um i learned from people whose first language was spanish so i remember like vespasian for the longest time i taught people because i was taught this that his name was vespasianos <laughs> i didn't know his name was vespasian until probably four or five years into the church yeah, or um, they 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 call um, polycrate. Uh, they they call them that instead of polycrates. Um, they they had um, Joel was Joel. Yeah. Um, oh, how, how do you say how do you say the I call I was taught it was Philemon. Oh. The Bible, the book. Philemon. 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 Yeah, yeah, that's what I was taught. Philemon. I was taught Philemon. 
Can I just say as an outsider, y'all sound like you're just saying a bunch of crazy words like either way. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'd say all pronunciations go here because I have no idea. You guys are speaking a different language to me. I'm interested to hear all the different pronunciations we have. (laughs) Because we all come from different parts of this country, really. Yeah. 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 Right, One thing I can not say that they did get right was the fall of Vandals in 534. That was that was correct. Um, but what's interesting is when I looked up the other ones, they say that the reason why the Catholic Church wanted to destroy these three kingdoms is because they were Arians. That um, Arianism was an eyesore. Uh, that's what the book said. And so we didn't know really what that meant. So we just kept on saying it was an eyesore. <laughs> but um, actually, the Lombards didn't turn Catholic until the 7th century. Uh, same with the Visigoths. The Anglo-Saxons uh, was around 600. Um, the Franks in the late 400s uh, to the early 500s. And um, the Swebi, which actually it's not Swevi with the V, it's a B. Um, in the 560s. So all these countries didn't convert out of Arianism fully into the Catholic Church until after the alleged fall of the Ostrogoths. That's huge. And the other one that I found very interesting is that the Burgundians were, um, Burgundians were in Switzerland. It's supposed to say Burgundians were Switzerland. Like all these different country, all these different tribes were supposed to have transformed into uh you know a current country like uh the visigoths were supposed to become spain the lombards italy anglo-saxons the uk franks france alemanni germany burgundians are supposed to be switzerland but what's really interesting is that uh the burgundians um the king of the uh visigoths married i'm sorry the king of the franks married the uh, princess of the Burgundians and then conquered her nation shortly after. So in 532, Burgundians fell, but there were supposed to be seven remaining. So this kingdom that they say existed and continued on and became Switzerland actually fell before the supposed you know, fall of the Ostrogoths in 538. So already these 10 tribes the explanation is false there's more than you know the tribes the dates don't match up but what i discovered about um ostrogoths and when it actually ended there's an amazing history involved and uh basically um what i can you know in short bring it to was that there was a goth war between the byzantine empire and the Goths who had Italy at the time. And that lasted from 535 to 554. 554 is well after 538. You know, when the Byzantines laid siege, in 536, Sicily, Naples, and Rome were conquered. But it wasn't until the capital was conquered in 540. But even though the capital of Ravenna was conquered, the gods still existed, and then they made a comeback. They came back and attacked, and they were able to pick up Rome once again in December of 546. So the Ostrogoths had Rome in 546, and they continued to exist, actually, 
um, until the emperor, uh, who was uh, Justinian the first in 551, he sent over more troops and they were finally able to destroy them in October of 553 at uh, the Battle of Lactarius. So by 554, they were completely destroyed, but that's not 538. And when you ask about that, when anyone brings it up, they say, well, they say that the uh, papacy was established in 538. Well, actually the establishment of the, uh, the papacy was not 538, but 754. There is nothing out there that says 538. So all these pieces of history that we held, you know, true, actually, when you look it up, it's it's not true. Like, historically, all these things that they taught us were false. Now, if you look up Ostrogoths, I really want to tell you guys the full history, but. Um, okay, can I tell you, can I just make a quick point about what you yeah. said? Like, Lindsay, we have these sheets, and I can show you. We have these syllabuses, is what we call them. And they have everything laid out so clearly, like 10 toes, 10 kingdoms, yada, 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 like very clear. As if history is so clear cut, as if history is like, and then this, 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 right? As if 538, bam, everything happened, right? It's just like history doesn't work like that. It was complicated. It was a long drawn out history of things that happened. It's not like dark ages were from this time to this time to this time. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But that's how our thinking was. Our thinking was black and white. This is this and this is this. And there's no there's no middle ground. So your your mind is just set up like that. So Kelsey, I want to ask you about you have some really interesting things that we want to talk to ask you about. One of the main teachings that, you know, uh, the Women's Guide teaches is about third day service. And so you have, of course, Sabbath day, we know it's Saturday, so you have to go all day Saturday, but you also have to go on Tuesday night. That, that is right. a requirement to get your right. blessing. Um, but, but the biblical evidence of a third day service is a little bit strange. So could you... Can you explain why that is an incorrect teaching? Yeah, yeah, I can go through that. So, um, so yeah, like like you said, the the Wimscog requires all of us not only to be um, at the church on on Saturdays, but also Tuesday evenings. So, um, because Saturday is the seventh day, that makes the third day um, Tuesday. And so, um, their justification is they use. Um, I'm going to kind of just how I explain things is, is, or how I want to explain things is kind of how, like using the verses that they had, that they provided in their explanations to kind of debunk this. So they use um, numbers chapter 19 and specifically verses 11 through 13, where it says like, whoever touches a dead body of anyone, they're going to be unclean for seven days and they have to purify themselves with water. And they have to purify themselves with. I'm just paraphrasing. They have to they have to purify themselves with water on the third and the seventh day, and that anybody who um, touches a dead body but does not purify themselves, they're going to be cut off, right? So their explanation is, you know, this isn't. They they talk about this isn't physical, right? We don't go around touching dead bodies on a daily basis, right? But dead to them are those who don't keep the Passover or don't basically who are not members. 
So to me, this would be Tony was living with me at the time. She had to go to Tuesday service to cleanse herself of my uncleanliness. Yeah, you were the dead body. I was the dead body. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So because they, you know, in in John chapter six, it says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Right. So those are the living in the eyes of the Wimscog is those who keep the Passover. So, you know, because we're out in the world and we're, I mean, we have to go to work, you know, we go visit, like you said, family, right? So because we have to interact with people who are not members, that's, um, we're interacting with dead bodies. So us, in order to not be cut off, in order for us to enter the kingdom of heaven, we have to purify ourselves with water on the third and the seventh day. And so water symbolically represents the word of God, meaning we go to the church, listen to the sermon, keep the service. And so, you know, again, they teach very extensively that the um, seventh day is Saturday. So therefore, the third day would be Tuesday. So so in the verse, Kelsey, Mm -hmm. in the verse, does it actually say to cleanse yourself with water? Yeah. So it says. Um, yes, on verse 12, it says, or from verse 11, it says, whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with water on the third and the seventh day. So, so to me as an outsider and like, uh, anybody just reading the Bible, I know, I know that in the Wimscog, they say like, you need the interpretation through the church in order to, for it to make sense. Right. That's, that's where I get annoyed with the biblical interpretation is that like, why would anybody know that? Why wouldn't that just mean like take a bath or like do, you know, like why does that mean like go and hear the word of God? You know, like that whole like loaded, that right. whole loaded thing is what just drives me crazy about most of the teachings, not just one right. Scott, but like a lot of the biblical, like it says this, but what it really means is this. And like, it's like yeah. just little things like, Go use the water. And like for you guys, that meant like, go hear the word of God. That's so crazy. Yeah. Well, it, it goes a little bit deeper because they um, they explain about the uh, the animal sacrifice that is needed for that water of cleansing. But yeah, like Anthony said, it goes it goes a lot deeper than that, um, especially in the, the involvement of the purification. Um, because when you see Numbers chapter 19, it's listing like a bunch of laws, right? And when you see the... The, the Old Testament, the, the WMS, they, they teach that the Old Testament law, like um, there's a, for a lot of the law, there's a fulfillment. And so the fulfillment of, of this physical law in the Old Testament is, is the third day. We have to be cleansed on the third day and then on, on Sabbath day. And so, um, so, so yeah, so um, in numbers, so yeah, so backing up to, to what Anthony was mentioning um, with the, the, Verses before in uh, Numbers chapter 19, it starts talking about the red heifer that I'm just going to like kind of paraphrase it. But you can see Numbers chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. It talks about the water cleansing that um, from verse 2, it says, tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without blemish or defect. So they're going to sacrifice a a heifer. Right. And it has to be without blemish or. Yep. (laughs) Without blemish or defect. And then um, that has never been under a yoke. And then verse three, give it to Eliezer, the priest, to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eliezer, the priest, is to take some of his blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. While he watches, the heifer is to be burned. It's hide flesh, blood, and opal. 
So the red heifer, again, has to be without blemish or defect, and it has to be burned, right? And then um, it says, verse 6, the priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop and scarlet wool, and throw them into the burning heifer, throw, throw them onto the burning heifer. And after that, the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He may then come into the camp, but he will be ceremonially unclean until evening. So he just dealt with what? Dead body, right? The man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he too will be unclean till evening. But then verse 9, it says, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. So they have to gather, after they burn the heifer, they have to gather the ashes, right? And then um, they shall be kept for the Israelite community for use of the water of cleansing. It is for the purification of sin. So they burn the, they burn the heifer without blemish or defect. And then they gather up the ashes and for use in the water of cleansing. And that cleanses somebody from their, their sin. So the WMS explanation is that like a heifer, a heifer is a, is a female cow, right? And so, um, and it says this without blemish or defect, Jesus by comparison, was the lamb without blemish or defect. So a female without blemish or defect would be mother, God the mother. And um, it says she's to be burned, right? And so the WMS uses that as guilt to tell members like every third day because of your sin and you have to be purified of that sin and interacting with the world, God the mother has to be burned for you and um that's why she sleeps when she's sitting at the altar <laughs> and i've witnessed that i witnessed that when i went to korea i witnessed her fall asleep during the service it's so morbid so while you're at third day service are you like visualizing that god the mother is like truly like burning for you yeah, she's sacrificing herself so that we can keep the service and be purified you're feeling guilty yes Yes. You're thinking yeah. of all those sins. Those but it's so abstract. Like wanting to eat food oh, and wanting to it's sleep. So it's so abstract. It's so fascinating. And it's yeah, it's yeah. really proof of like how deep that indoctrination has to go. Like you have to be so far into the like inception levels of like, and then mother represents this because Jesus represents this. And then she's being burned, but she's not physically being burned. She's just spiritually burned. But you should feel actually guilty. Yeah. Like was physically being burned. That's how you should feel. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. And and when you see on the examining site, there's two articles that are really good at, at breaking this down. Um, one of which like explains how this this if if you tie any fulfillment to this prophecy, it's most likely speaking about Jesus who died on the cross two thousand years ago rather than God, the, like a God, the mother, because um, it's a, uh, yeah. So, cause one point, like when you see the word heifer, like a, like a heifer is a young cow that is one, the definition is a young cow, one year old that has not produced a calf. Right. So when you think about John Gilja, um, first of all, physically, she's not young. She's 79 years old. Right. Um, she has produced children, so she's so she, by definition, she does not fulfill like 
She's been yoked. Right? Because she's got kids, right? So um, the article in the examining site, it's kind of funny. It says, if she's not a heifer, she's just a cow, right? Because she's produced kids. And so, um, so yeah. And then also it says in Numbers chapter 19, verse 2, like I mentioned, it's a heifer without blemish or defect, right? But when you look at John Gilja, there's many defects that are tied with her because she's a human being just like all of us. The new songs even we, we would sing about how she was withered and how, yeah. you know, she was disfigured, like all these different like uh, terms we'd use about her in the new songs. Yeah, yeah. Just to in just That's to true. induce guilt in in people and in, in members who are listening to that and seeing but that she's not without blemish blemish or defect. Well, this yeah. is my ignorance to the Bible in and of itself right now. Um, numbers is Old Testament, right? Right. Yes. So so mm-hmm. it's not very far fetched to say that when this was written, it's a literal sacrifice. I mean, right. they're literally saying sacrifice an actual right. animal because that's not far fetched to say that that's what they meant. In no, right. They- they so, were really cool. so to pull out the abstraction isn't really necessary in Old Testament verses. They probably right. right if you're following it to the T of like uh, what the Bible is saying, they really want you to sacrifice a, a baby cow. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's why that's why it comes to like with the with the WMS, they're always talking about prophecy and fulfillment, and especially the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, because they they have a study called Law of Moses, Law of Christ where they teach that um, it's the, the law in the Old Testament was fulfilled to the law, well, into the law found in the New Testament. But it's when you see the Old, the Old Testament's got like a million laws, right? It's not every single law the WMS keeps like a fulfillment of. It's just select ones that they've handpicked. And this is one of them where they've taken the verses and applied retroactively, applied some kind of meaning to fit their doctrine, right? Because Numbers chapter 19, An Sang Hong, he he didn't teach this explanation that the heifer represents a god, the mother, um, that she's sacrificing herself on the third day. He didn't teach that. And I challenge any member listening to to find any record of him actually teaching that, that description, as the WMS says. Well, what I did want to speak about with this, uh, with the third day is in the original, the prophecy part, those who were unclean because they touched a dead body, where do they have to remain? Where do they have to remain? It says outside of the camp. Right. But in our teaching, like, what is the camp and what's outside the camp? The camp is the, uh, the church, Zion. All the church. Yes. So if, if you go out into the world, that means you have to stay out there until you've been there for seven days. So you think that the fulfillment of the prophecy would be you can't come to church until you're made clean because you've had this third day and the seventh day. That's a really good point. But you do have to come into the church in order to receive it, which is contradictory to what this uh, prophecy supposedly says. The other thing is, um, when does this third day and seventh day start? You know, you, they assume that it's the third day of the week and the seventh day of the week. But if you're unclean for seven days, like let's just say on uh, Friday, you touch a dead body. So one day after is the seventh day of the week. 
And then, you know, so Saturday is one day, Tuesday, uh, sorry, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday is the fourth day. So you kept your Saturday, you kept your Tuesday, but that's only four days. So you're going to be unclean until Thursday. Why? Right. You're yeah. unclean for seven days. What the, what the explanation, the understanding of what that actually means, the third day is not the third day of the week, but the third day since you've touched the dead body. So, so that third day it, would be Monday. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That That's a really day good point. would be the Thursday because you have to be unclean for seven days, not until you pass a third and seventh day. Mm-hmm. Because that could be only four days. It could be only one, you know, like it could be like three or four days. But, you know, no matter what, um, if you touch the dead body and you need to keep these days, it's starting from that day that you touch the dead body three days after. And that could, that's a moving target based on whatever day of the week you touch the dead body. So their explanation of what the third day is being every single Tuesday, well, that's wrong. That's a very, very good point to consider. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. That's a lot. Yeah. But that's what, that's, that's another thing that the, the Wimscog doesn't anticipate is not only us not, I mean, in the context of this episode, not only us not, checking up on the actual history of, of things, but also not reading the entire context of the verses that they pick out or used. Right. right. Because in this context, I mean, for the most part, 11 through 13, that is like the, the, the very basic explanation of third day. And then 19 chapter 19, one through 10 is a little bit more, but I've never, the, the church never has me read 14 through 22 which is the mm-hmm. whole other half of it. Right. So, um, so, so, so yeah. Um, but also I, there was another point that I wanted to mention with this study too, because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus's sacrifice 2000 years ago also fulfilled the sacrifice of the heifer in, in terms of the Bible, because when you see the Hebrews chapter nine, and I'm going to go there real quick so I can read it what it says Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 13 through 14 it says um the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit God offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences consciences from the act that led to death so that we may serve the living God so it talks about the ashes of a heifer being sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. But then it talks about the sacrifice of Christ. And so, of course, the WMS reading that might say, oh, you know, God, the mother, she's a female Christ. But this is speaking about Jesus 2000 years ago, because when you see from verse again, reading the context, right, if you see from two verses before in verse 11, it says when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of his creation. So so when Christ came, right, past yeah. that. So this is speaking about Christ, and then it talks about how Christ is the fulfillment of those sacrifices. This isn't the only verse in the Bible that says Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices. So when the WMS tries to you know, say numbers after 19, uh, the, the red heifer is specifically speak because it's female. 
is specifically speaking about a God, the mother or a female Christ. That's not correct. When you look at the, the other parts of the Bible. That they Jesus do. already took care of that. Don't worry about it. And you guys yeah. are like still feeling guilty about it. It's, it's all about with, with this subject in particular, it's all about just inducing guilt into members like because of your sin that you committed in heaven and the sin you still commit on this earth you know god the mother is here and she's sacrificing herself so you can be purified of your sin so like you should feel like thankful when you're keeping the service you should feel bad when you're keeping the service and then and 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 they do that so that not only do you feel bad and guilty but then you do something about it in terms of recruitment so that you go out and you preach to find the rest of God the Mother's lost children, which is really recruiting to find more members to bring more money into the church. It's it's a strategy. Yep. The guilt really pushes because you. Because if you feel guilty enough, if you feel guilty enough, you'll go and help your brothers and sisters mm -hmm. and you'll help mothers suffering come to an end. Yeah, if you're really sorry about what you did, then you should do something to fix it kind of thing. In the never-ending loop of never-ending rules that are never going to get you anywhere. Yep. Yeah. Keep telling me, guys. Right. How about um, the Millerite movement? Oh, that'll be good. Yeah, let's talk about the That's Millerite. very timely because they just finished okay. the feast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. There's seven feasts of three different times. And they just started finishing celebrating their last feast. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, all those ones. Yes, right? the feast. All right, Anthony, explain about why this is important. Okay, so uh, out of all the seven feasts, there was, how did it happen during the time of Moses? How did the Israelites commemorate these key events after you know Moses and the Israelites went through the desert? And then finally, what is the grand fulfillment? So they say that there are three periods of time. Um, and the last time, the age we're living in now, has the final three feasts, which is trumpets leading to the Day of Atonement. And that's a 10-day period. And then there's a few days off, like five days off. And then there's a Feast of Tabernacles, which lasts for a week. So it's from one day, like maybe if, if it's a Sunday, it lasts until the next Sunday. So with it, they say that the fulfillment was done in this generation. They say that um, the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement were both fulfilled through something known as the Millerite movement. So the old feasts were fulfilled, like the Passover and Unleavened Bread were fulfilled by the Israelites um surviving a plague that came rushing through and killing the firstborn they say that um the second set of feasts were fulfilled by jesus's resurrection and then the holy spirit descending upon the early church on the feast of pentecost um and also kind of included with that is jesus ascending into heaven uh 10 days prior to pentecost and in this age you know all those miraculous things occurred but in this age the fulfillment of trumpets and atonement was 10 years. What they teach is that, um, and this is found in uh, My Sheep Listen to My Voice, written by uh, the general pastor, Ju Chul Kim. 
Um, I am looking at the seventh edition that was posted in 2007. In chapter 15, the feasts, uh, pages 335 to 337. Um, which is the English slash Korean version of it. It says, Trumpets Fulfillment, fulfilled by the Advent movement led by William Miller for 10 years. So they're saying that uh, from trumpets for 10 years, William Miller had preached until the Day of Atonement. And this was fulfilled. Israelites got the Ten Commandments back on atonement um, that were destroyed uh, earlier. And the destroyed truth of the early church began to be restored from Atonement Day, October 22nd, 1844. So what they teach is from 1834 to 1844, for 10 years, there was a Millerite movement. Why does it have to be 10 years? Is because they say a year represents a day, a day represents a year. And from trumpets to atonement, there are 10 days. So there needs to be this time of repentance for 10 years, uh, the Millerite movement occurred. And basically, uh, William Miller said, the end of the world is coming. Christ is coming back. Advent means we're preparing for a second coming Christ. People were giving up all their money. People were like, quitting their jobs just to preach and just to get people prepared. Because 18 originally 1843, but then he changed it to 1844, was supposed to be the end of the world. Jesus Christ was supposed to appear in the cloud and you know, bring everyone to heaven. It was supposed to be, you know, that was the fulfillment uh, that he was expecting. You know, he said, of course, I, you know, I might be wrong, but, you know, I'm really, really sure, sure enough that people should quit their jobs. You know, sure enough, people should give up all their money. Sure enough, <laughs> but actually he was wrong. But they say it lasted from 1834 to 1844. However, if you actually look up the movement. It didn't start in 1834. It started in 1831. That's when he began to preach the end of the world was going to happen. Um, and then in uh, he he said this because of a prophecy he saw at Daniel's chapter 8, verse 13 to 14. Um, in 1833, he started publishing a pamphlet. And in 1836, he began to uh, publish a book about his lectures. But... From 1831 to 1844, when he started until he ended, that's 13 years, not 10 years. So he doesn't really fulfill that 10-year prophecy that they had created. Nothing significant happened in 1834 in the Millerite movement for that to be the start date, for them to start to calculate. Actually, it started in 1831. And on top of this, if you think about the fulfillment of the feast in the past, there's all these great miraculous things that had occurred. But the um, they say that the Day of Atonement, which is one of the most holy days on the Jewish sacred calendar, was fulfilled by a day that was known as the Great Disappointment. So the Great Disappointment, this day was supposed to fulfill this amazing feast. So one, they get their dates wrong. It was a 13-year period, but they try to bend history to say it was only for 10 years in order to fill that 10 days of the feast. But on top of that, you know, the culmination of this great feast ends with the Day of Atonement being fulfilled by a great disappointment. So you can see that, you know, this is uh, another thing that they teach as a key factor of the feast being fulfilled, but it's actually 
not fulfilled according to the, you know, quote unquote history that they have. After the great disappointment, they were called the remnant. And then the um, seventh, and then later started to form the Seventh-day Adventist church. And the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and like all these different groups came out of the Millerite movement. All these like uh, the end is coming soon groups came from this, you know, they, they, I guess they saw a, a quick cash grab of you say the end of the world's coming and, you know, people will do wacky things for you. And the Wimscog just continues on that uh, tradition. In a way, the Wimscog is, a, you know, a branch off of that great, great disappointment of the last remnant. Yeah. The grandchild. Yeah. And you know who wow, else wow. was? You know who also was? That David Koresh group, too. The David Koresh group. Right. That was in right. Waco. They were they were a branch off the Seventh Day Adventist too around the same time. Kelsey, wow, I feel like I'm right there. I just want to drop like a boom baby because I just feel like <laughs> that right there is evidence. That right there is evidence that the Wimscog is not right. Like their greatest study of the seven feasts and all their fulfillment and everything. It's yeah. just right there. It's not true. Right. Um, another one of their teachings is about a second Passover. Is that what you? Uh, no, right, no, no. The second Passover, Passover? Temporary. a temporary Passover. Yeah. Is this, so is this the Passover that you get right after you're baptized? Yes. Yes. It's different okay. than second Passover. Okay. So Lindsay, right after you're baptized, it's obviously not Passover right away, but you need to keep it. So right after baptism, they allow a special allowance for you to Passover right after you're baptized. And so then that will keep you until the next Passover comes. It's kind of like, you know, it'll keep you safe. You get the seal of God real quick. Yeah. So say, for example, say, for example, the Passover is today, right? November 5th. So, and then someone gets baptized November 6th, right? Do they have to wait a whole year to let, let's forget about the discussion of the second Passover, right? But let's say that they get baptized the day after Passover, November 6th, right? Does that mean they need to wait a whole year to be able to celebrate the Passover? Because the church of God, they teach that Passover is a way to salvation. It's a way to receive the forgiveness of your sins, right? When they, before they baptize people, they have this study called be baptized immediately where they, they teach in Proverbs chapter 27 that, you know, you can't guarantee what's going to happen tomorrow. You can't guarantee what's going to happen tonight. You could die in an accident going home, right? If you die before you're baptized, can you be saved? And then people say, of course not. Right. So, but then that's why they, they, they teach that it's important to receive salvation as soon as possible. But if they have to wait a whole year to keep Passover, that's a whole year of opportunities that something could happen to you, right? And so, Kelsey, you're triggering me. You're triggering me. I feel like I need to get <laughs> baptized immediately. Stop it. Don't worry. It's not the it's not the correct baptism. But, um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Tell me. Don't, don't tell worry. me why that's wrong. I want to know. No. So so they they equate this temporary Passover to like um, a temporary license, right? So say you you go to the DMV, you get your license, right? Do they give you the, the plastic license first right away? No, right? They give you the temporary one, which is the paper one. And the paper one is good. Like if you get pulled over or something like that, where you need to show your ID is valid, right? But it's only valid until your actual license comes in, 
right? So in the same way, it's like after we're baptized, we have to keep what's called the temporary Passover, um, which is good, which protect, like protects us until we have to keep until the actual Passover comes around again. And then then it's it's no longer the temporary one's no longer valid. So they teach that right after you're baptized, you have to keep the Passover. And one of the reasons why they teach that is because um, there's a verse in First Corinthians. Um, let me pull it up real quick. First Corinthians chapter ten, and it says First Corinthians chapter ten, verse one through four. It says, "For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea." And then verse three, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. So they, this is one of the verses that they use to say, OK, after you're baptized, you have to keep the Passover. But um, in preparation for this, I wanted to my approach to, to understanding what the temporary Passover and is it actually biblically required? I wanted to look at the same exact verses that the WMS uses to um, explain why we should be baptized immediately because the WMS also teaches that everything we, everything they do is they do because Christ and the apostles taught it, right? Everything they do is in the example of Christ and the apostles. So the verses that they use for the study, be baptized immediately shows all these examples of the apostles baptizing people and we can see what actually happened and whether or not it actually fits with their doctrine of temporary Passover. So um, I was, so the first verse I wanted to look at was in Acts, Acts chapter eight. This one was actually really funny for me. So Acts chapter eight um, is talking about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that they're traveling and the eunuch's reading from the book of Isaiah, and he's saying, like, or, and 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 Philip asks him, "Do you understand what you are reading?" And he said, "No. How can I unless someone explains it to me?" So Philip then uses the book of Isaiah to preach, to preach to the the eunuch. And then the eunuch, they're traveling, right? So the eunuch says, "Stop the chariot! I want to get baptized on the side of the road, right?" And so in Acts chapter eight. In verse 36, it says, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. So again, they were traveling. The eunuch says, I want to be baptized now. You know, here's water on the side of the road. Baptize me now. And then, so Philip baptized him. And then it says in verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Now, remember the WMS, they teach that after we're baptized, we have to keep the Passover. Like if you've ever witnessed a baptism ceremony in the church of God, it's like you're baptized and then immediately you change back into your clothes and then you head to a room and the whoever baptized you has the bread and the wine ready to go. It's not like a couple hours later, Jer or not Jeremy, Anthony, you know, you were about, you were a person who baptized, right? Yeah. Well, Anthony, uh, I, I let, let me ask you a question. As someone okay. who received authority to baptize people in the Wimscog, if someone was, if you perform the baptism ceremony 
and the person did not want to drink the bread or the wine, or you did not offer the bread and the wine to them, would that baptism have been valid? No. No, right? No. So that's the teaching of the Wimscog is they have to keep the Passover, this temporary Passover after baptism. That's what they teach is the yeah. truth. You need to call General Assembly immediately. Yes. And, and yeah, it wouldn't count. It wouldn't count, right? So then again, they claim to follow the example of Christ and the apostles. But here it says in verse 38, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then Philip and the eunuch went down to the water. Philip baptized him. So apostle Philip baptized him. But then it says the very next verse, right? The Lord suddenly took Philip away. Then let me ask you, Anthony, again, as someone who has a, who had authority to baptize people in the World Mission Society Church of God, according to their standards, was this baptism that Apostle Philip performed, was this something that, would this be considered a valid baptism? If we use the uh, standards that we had in the Wibscog, no. 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 I mean, there wasn't even like a registration in the Book of Life. That too, right? So what's the address, Unique? Uh, what's your phone number? What's your <laughs> what's your social? Exactly. Well, right? they don't ask a social, but so, well, <laughs> invasive yeah, like that. Depends what. Yeah, I've heard different stories about that, but but yeah. So so yeah. So we see the first example, right? This baptism uh, uh, performed by Apostle Philip, according to the WMS, is not a valid baptism, right? And then we see another verse that they use acts chapter 10. wait does that mean that that guy just died well god I mean, came and god came and snatched him up oh no no i mean he didn't die right there it was no. an angel right yeah. wasn't it an angel yeah yeah why is the bible so fucking confusing <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna yeah you'd have to there's a know. lot of cool stories there's a lot of cool stories yeah, very. It's there are a lot of interesting stories, that's for sure. But you have to be careful. All these people are manipulating them for can their I, own. Can I just pop right here and say one of my favorite reasons to I don't believe in the Bible stories at all is uh the the exodus of like like what is it three to six million people like perishing in the desert over mm -hmm. years. And, uh, like, everything that we know about history and, like, anything historical that's ever happened, there would be definitely archaeological evidence of there being that many people that had, like, either lived in that area or, like, died in mass. And there's absolutely nothing that, to support that story at all. And so a lot of people take that exodus as, like, this literal thing that happened over the time for them to go there. But we have absolutely zero physical evidence that that ever happened. So, mm -hmm. boom, baby. We should do a whole episode about, you know, historical evidence compared to biblical record. Right. Okay. So, Kelsey, tell us another example. So another example, you know, again, just following the study of Be Baptized Immediately, Acts chapter 10 and verse, uh, well, verse 44 through 48. Yeah, 44 through 48 is talking about the Gentiles. This is an example that the church uses that even the Gentiles, as soon as they heard the word of Christ, they were baptized immediately, right? Then verse 47, it says, and this is talking about Apostle Peter. So can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Verse 48, 
So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. It does not say after they, he baptized them, immediately they kept the Passover, right? So again, according to even Apostle Peter's example of baptizing people, this is not a valid baptism according to Wimscock standards, right? And then I'm going to go quickly through this one, this, this next one, Acts chapter 16 and verse 13 through 16 is talking about, um, I believe this is also Paul, or this is Apostle Paul now. And he comes, he goes to, to Lydia and um, he says, or verse 13, it says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to re respond to Paul's message, which was obviously the message of Christ, right? In verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And then verse 16, it says, once they were going to the place of prayer, so it goes on, right? So he mm -hmm. baptized them. They went to her house and then they just go on their way, right? So again, no mention of a temporary Passover. But yet the, so also Paul, when Apostle Paul baptized um, Lydia, this baptism was not valid according to Wimscock standards. But Apostle Paul, he's the apostle of apostles, right? He's the one that they claim to follow, his example. But yet, Apostle Paul never mentioned about a temporary Passover. So if this was so important for our salvation, if this is something that like, you know, because again, in the WMS, they, they put such a big emphasis on you don't know what's going to happen, right, to yourself. So mm. wouldn't, so, so you need to keep the Passover as soon as, it's available to you, right? And so, but again, no mention of it here. But the but further on in the chapter, when you see um, they continue preaching, going out and preaching, in the verse 31, it says, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is a different household. This is Apostle Paul and now Silas too. Um, so, yeah, so verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. So again, this is talking about Apostle Paul and Silas. They were in prison and then they preached to the, the jailer and his family and they wanted to get baptized and they were baptized, right? So I want to show this example because of the next verse, verse 34, because I think the WMS will twist this um, to, to fit their explanation of temporary Passover. So they were just baptized, verse 34. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So the WMS, I, I know, they're going to take this verse and say, oh, there was a meal set. That meal was the Passover. But there's a couple issues with that because it says the jailer brought them to his house and set a meal, right? So, so Anthony, let me ask you, in all your time of baptizing people in the Wimscog, did the person being baptized bring their own bread and wine? No, never. No, right? If they brought their own bread and wine for the we temple. We couldn't use it. Yeah, you would not use it, right? It would not be a valid baptism. So here, the jailer brought their own meal, right? And second of all, again, 
if Passover is so incredibly important for our salvation, if the temporary Passover has to happen after the baptism, then why doesn't it say the word Passover here? It doesn't even mention bread and wine. It just says meal, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, again, Apostle Paul's example, but now also Silas. So we see four apostles, right? Silas, Peter, Philip, Paul. All of them, they baptized people and they went on their way, right? There was no example of them baptizing people and then performing a temporary Passover ceremony. But yet all these baptisms were valid, right? So if, if the, if the Wimscott claims to follow the example of Christ and the apostles, they cannot say the temporary Passover is required because none of those apostles did that. And according to Wimscott standards, none of those baptisms are valid, right? So wow. what's your, what's your guys' speculation as to why they put such emphasis on the temporary Passover? I have a theory. My my theory about why temporary Passover is so important is because it adds urgency to baptism. Um, they want to have people's data. They want to have people in their numbers. So if you could kind of bring them in by saying, Oh, get baptized, and then immediately you'll have this Passover that we've been like telling you all about. You know, you'll get the seal of God, you'll get forgiveness of sins, you'll get all these benefits, you could go to heaven, you know, you don't have to worry. If, if they don't they they underemphasize baptism and they overemphasize the their teaching of the Passover, but there's there's you know no bang for the buck if you just get the baptism. Like that's why they have to combine it together with this temporary Passover. Okay. So if, if you want, if you want to get salvation, you know, you need this temporary, you need a Passover, like we said. Like so, a holdover, but you better wait until the real one to get the final yeah. driver's license. So it kind yeah, of keeps you, exactly. It keeps you like held in until the real Passover. Yeah, it's a good enough. And then. Now. And then you'll have time to study all the amazing studies and find out who the Antichrist is and all these yeah. things. And 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 that's and, and that once you're baptized and keep the temporary Passover, that's when you start being counted as a member. So because when you see like they, they claim to have millions of members, I don't know how many at this point, but they claim to have millions of members in their church. But I'm I'm fairly certain that a lot of those numbers they're just counting anyone who's ever been baptized i'm pretty sure tony anthony and i are still being counted in those numbers even though we're very much not members anymore right well what i found interesting about that is they say they have three million members and then they say they have seven thousand six hundred churches right so that's about um like 400 members per church and now you know included in that number are the office churches the house churches and an office church is usually around like 50 members. A house church may be like, you know, 2 to 10 to 15. Um, and a temple, like the big church, is maybe like, you know, 150, 200, you know, around that zone. So if all their churches had 400 people, then that number would be factual. But they don't even get those numbers for, you know, the Passover, like once a year where, you know, people come out of the woodworks to keep that. So, you know, that 3 million number is definitely not accurate. The only way it could be accurate for them to have 3 million active members is if every single one of their churches had 400 people. And that's not the case. That's not the case. 
it's, it's they're, they're, they don't lie like like that guy said you don't have to you know if you have the truth in your side you don't need to fabricate stories to support right. what you're saying and over and over we can see these instances where they fabricated mm -hmm. fabricated these lies yeah and so um so one one other verse i wanted to show was acts chapter two Acts chapter two, this is one of the, the verses that they show of like what blessing you receive when you're baptized. So Acts chapter two and verse 38, it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So they, they teach that, you know, through baptism, you can receive the forgiveness of your sins, right? And then it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far. And for all who are far off, for all who, for all whom the Lord your God will call, verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3000 were added to their number that day. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So we can see here is talking about that in one day, right? Like 3000 people were baptized. Right. But there were very I'm, I'm assuming. Right. There were very few people at that time who could perform baptism. Right. Mm -hmm. So can you it, it, it doesn't make sense that, first of all, again, doesn't mention Passover here. Right. And then the verse afterwards, it does not mention anything about how right after they all three thousand people, these were all three thousand people were baptized, that they kept a temporary Passover. Right. It says that they what they um, devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship of breaking bread and prayer. Right. So having meals with um, each other, like the like um, community kind of uh, thing. Right. So, again, they did not keep any temporary Passover after the baptism. But again, only few people could perform baptism. So can you imagine if, let's say, you know, 10 apostles baptized 3,000 people, how much wine and bread they'd be consuming in that one day? Because I mean, <laughs> these people were poor. Do you think they had enough bread and wine to, to feed 3,000 people? Jesus wasn't here at this time. He wasn't making miracles to make that last, right? Very, yeah. very drunk, right? And so, so, yeah. So, again, I mean, you can just see time and time again, right, through the verses that the, the Wimscog uses, right, that afford to be baptized immediately. There's no mention about a temporary Passover. So, so, so yeah, I mean, that's, again, long story short, that's, it's not there. It's not a teaching of the Bible. It's a teaching of the Wimscog. Yeah. Wow. Wow. You know what's amazing about that one, too? Um, after the day of Pentecost, 120 people, the Acts chapter 1 explains, there's 120 people in the church. They baptized after they received the Holy Spirit of the former reign, um, 3,000. So that's 25 per person. You know, if every single person was going out there and bringing somebody to be baptized. Meanwhile, they say that, you know, us today... We should be receiving the uh, latter rain, which is seven times stronger. So everybody, after they receive this supposed Holy Spirit that the Wimscog says that they provide to us through these feasts, should be baptizing 175 people that day. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, that that never happens. That 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 
you leave the Feast of Tabernacles um, exhausted and you just want to go home and sleep because of how mm-hmm. like, terrible that month has been. And then, you know, maybe you go preaching for a little bit, but almost no fruit and even a temple is born that day. Like maybe you're lucky if you get two, like max. And, you know, like I'm sure different areas have different results, but, you know, this Holy Spirit that they say that you get, it, it, it's not visible. There's no, there's no result. So, you know, <laughs> everyone's falling asleep. Everybody's exhausted. You know, and, and they don't receive anything. Even when they say that your spiritual eyes are open on the day of resurrection with that resurrection bread that they make you eat, that like uh, sesame rice bread that they say makes you see angels or whatever. That's bread bomb, though. I'm not gonna lie. I loved, I loved the rice cake bread. It, it Me was, too. It was it, the, the yeah. unleavened the the Passover bread was just like oh. god awful for me, but the resurrection day bread that was delicious. Oh, yeah, there was this one year where we bought the bread and the Korean uh, shop that we bought it from because they can't add sugar or salt or anything to this bread. All they could put is the sesame oil on it. And they gave us red and green and all these different colors. And we had to like, like argue really hard about it because they wanted us to take that. I was like, no, no, no. We and they're like, no, but you know, these are upgrades. These are more expensive. And it's like, we don't want the more expensive one. We just need the white ones. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, Can you it was imagine really- red and blue and green ones? Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. <laughs> Somebody well, might think it's a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't take your picture by them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's hilarious. Wow. All right. So, Anthony, as um, you know, as we all know, the Green Book was one of the most treasured books. Um, but but there's a, um, a little bit of controversy about something that was written in An Sang Hong's book, the, the Mystery of God in the Spring of the Water of Life. Can you explain that? Well, one of the things that um, if you really like dig into the book, um, they've already removed a couple of the chapters because the prophecies weren't fulfilled such as An Sang Hong was supposed to ascend up to heaven with 144,000 as Elijah. They removed that chapter because he died. Um, he died eating noodles and, you know, it, it, it didn't happen like he said it would. So in the book, uh, The Mystery of God and the Spring of the Water of Life that he had released, in chapter 16, the chapter 16 is called The Appearance of False Christs. I'm just saying that just in case other chapters get removed and, you know, 16 becomes 14 or, you know, whatever. (laughs) But uh, there's a quote at the beginning of it. It says, uh, therefore, the gospel, the light of life will come from the East Korea and will be preached to the world like lightning in a flash. Lightning represents that the gospel, which has not been accomplished for 1900 years, will be completed within 37 years. Now, what does it mean for the gospel to be completed? It means, as he said, it will preach, be preached to the world. But according to Matthew 24, 14, it says, when the gospel is preached to the whole world, then the end will come. When I was in one of the churches, they had that on a banner behind the altar. This gospel will be preached to the whole world, dot, dot, dot. And then they left off the, then the end will come. Because once the gospel is preached to everybody, that's when the end will come. So 
he says that this gospel will be completed within 37 years, which means that the end of the world will come in 37 years. Well, what is the gospel? That's the question. Um, according to the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil book that he wrote, wrote, it's called The Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil and the Gospel, chapter 9, what is the gospel of the new covenant? He says that the gospel is baptism, Sabbath, preaching on the Feast of Tabernacles, and four, the Passover, bread and wine. So all of those things, you know, they could be considered the gospel. Well, in 1948, he was baptized, and we were taught that he started to preach the gospel from the moment he was baptized. That's not true, but we were told that, which would mean 1985, the gospel should be completed. Well, maybe it's 1964 when he established his own church, and he was teaching about the Feast of Tabernacles, the Sabbath, baptism, the Passover, all these things. Well, that already happened as well. In fact, they had the 50th anniversary of the church in 2014, and they called it uh, Jubilee. Well, okay, you know, the only thing that maybe I could think of to give them a little credit for is that, you know, they say that the Passover is a new covenant, but they say that God the Mother is the new covenant as well. So maybe it's a revelation of God the Mother. Maybe the story of God the Mother being told is when the gospel is revealed. Well, supposedly God the Mother was revealed at Passover 1984. And <clears throat> even further, on a day that commemorate as Heavenly Parents Day, 1984, before An Sang Hong died. Well, from that time, 1984 plus 37 is 2021. Again, another date that is coming gone. So when do you start the clock? When is the gospel preached? Because it has to be done in 37 years or An Sang Hong is a false prophet. And it seems like all these dates have come and gone. And the 37 years, you know, has not come to fruition. So we can only assume that An Sang Hong's message is a false message. <clears throat> so we can see that his history, what he wrote would happen. It didn't happen. And another thing that the Wimscog talks about, um, you know, speaking about things that they publish uh, that don't come true or are different from what they explain is uh, the teaching about Elohim. I used to look at my new song book and in the new song book, it says that um, Elohim is plural for God. There's El or Eloah for a singular male or female God, but Elohim, Him being like a plural term in Hebrew, is used to describe God over 2,500 times. However, Elohim is used for any set of spiritual beings. Even in the book of Exodus, where, you know, during the Passover, God's destroying all the gods of Egypt. All the gods of Egypt, the word that's used is Elohim. So God destroyed Elohim of Egypt. So yeah. that, you know, when they teach this, they pretend... Oh, Elohim is a plural God, God the Father, God the Mother. But, you know, and 2,500 times it speaks about God the Father, God the Mother inside the Bible. I remember preaching that to people over 2,500 times. Elohim, a plural God, you know, male and female. It's all over the Bible. I didn't know that Elohim was also used for a, a, a myriad of false gods. And, wow. you, know, it, you know, it could be God and the angels, a host of spiritual beings. All these spiritual entities in a plural form, any spiritual entity in a plural form is an Elohim. 
Yeah, and that's why they say, uh, you know, God, sometimes they call him uh, Elohim of Elohim, meaning like the, the God of gods. You know, there's a, a bunch of different ways that the term is used, but it's used frequently and to mean so many different things. So their explanation, again, of this, like we just believed it. You know, it's written inside the news home book so deceptively, and they make you think it always refers to, you know, a God as a plural, a male and a female. But in reality, it's it's a lie. And, you know, it's something that we just believe because we never really looked into it. But, you know, once you do a comparison of the Hebrew to the English Bible, you, you know, all these uh, things come to light. And, you know, that's why they don't want you on the Internet, <laughs> because who would know it without it? Yeah, it's 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 again, it's like they, they, they bank on the fact that that members aren't going to look anything up. Um, or and, and and even if you did look something up, like like you were mentioning mentioning earlier, Anthony, you know your your mind tries to justify it. Like if you see something different, like if you were to see the Ostrogoths wasn't destroyed in in 538 AD, you would think, oh, there's there's probably some reason why they're saying 538 AD. And do you yeah. think the the beginning of this buildup was in the 90s when the internet didn't exist, and so that so too. much. Of so much of the teaching was happening and kind of spreading in the 90s and the early 2000s. And so now they're probably just like, now what the fuck are we going to do? <laughs> what are we supposed to do? All the good and the good evil, that's what you do. Well, when I was in, um, it's funny because I was, I, I think I told this story on Great Light, but when I was, um, I, I was recruited right as I started college, right? And um, so I was like, it, I, I didn't grow up with the the Bible, so like I didn't really like anticipate like what the what the Wimscog was teaching me was like drastically different than what other people thought about Christianity. So I remember I was taking a religion class, and the professor said we could write a, whatever we wanted to write about, right? Just had to write like a a three page paper on it or something like that. So I wrote a paper about how Constantine. Um, had um abolished the passover and because of that he like the the truth was lost <laughs> the truth of the passover was lost and nobody could receive salvation i i wrote a paper like that i didn't even get partial credit for that i didn't even get like you know you know sometimes you get points for writing your name i didn't even get partial credit for that paper and i remember going to the ta's office and asking you, I, because I, I, I asked you if I could write a paper about Constantine, and you said it was okay. And she said, "I don't know where you got your information from, <laughs> but it is not historically accurate. He did not oh abolish the Passover, and he's actually known as like a hero in Christianity." <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, yeah and it's funny because I remember at that time, like I was, I was trying to find information about. Constantine abolishing the Passover and I was you know googling and I couldn't find anything and I remember calling the deaconess asking about it and she's like oh just look at the evidence book and the evidence book was like a, at the time was a Wikipedia article and so um and, and it also didn't mention much about abolishing come the on Kelsey Wikipedia is the most trusted news news source next to fox news exactly exactly so that's why that's why you're not allowed to cite it on a college paper that's why i was trying to find other sources and 
the other sources just simply did not exist the way the WMS taught me. And so I just wrote, I, I wrote what I was taught in the WMS and I, and I didn't even get partial points for that. So, so yeah. I feel like we could have started with that story, Kelsey. <laughs> That's a great example of everything we're talking about. Don't, don't use their info to write a college paper for. Yeah, you're going to fail. Let's leave it there and let's talk about Constantine next time because I'm curious about Constantine didn't abolish the Passover. I mean, even after all these years, I still think Constantine didn't abolish the Passover. <laughs> no, I, I, I got to find my notes because I pre I, yeah. I that for great light. And um, I got some I got some pretty good notes on that one. Oh, I want to hear about that. Them, but yeah. Okay, yeah, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about some failed doomsday prophecies. I want to talk about some, all kinds of more stuff. Uh, an interesting woman named Um Sue In that we're going to talk about. So yeah, they come back. Hong's DNA on Um Sue In's dress. <laughs> I mean, okay, if the wind's not going to make Breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> the, 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 she's the uh, the Monica Lewinsky of the uh, 19, 1950s, 1960s. It wasn't even Wimscog then. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't Wimscog until 1998. Oh my gosh. Well, well you know, if that yeah. history can be uh, <laughs> manufactured from so them. So stay tuned. Stay tuned for DNA results and history <laughs> about Amzu in. Yeah, on you are not the father. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys ready to do it? All right, everybody stay tuned for the next episode. We got more coming for you. It's just it's just interesting. Okay, so tell us about the Ostrogoths. I want to hear what happened to the Ostrogoths. Okay. Um well, the full history <laughs> that I'll share is, okay, so originally the Ostrogoths were under the Hun uh, Empire, the dynasty. So basically, the, you know, kind of like Game of Thrones, which I, I know you haven't watched, Tony, but basically sometimes there's a king who rules over a bunch of different kingdoms. So the Hun dynasty uh, had Ostrogoths under their territory. And when Attila the Hun died in 453, um, the Byzantine Empire came and took a portion of what the Hun Empire had and included within the portion of land was um, the Ostrogoths. So now the Ostrogoths, they have a new boss, the Byzantines. So this is under a, uh, a king of the Byzantines named Leo. The Ostrogoths had a king named Theodemir. Now, basically, it's like, hey, we're your new boss. All you got to do for us to, you know, protect you and for you to be part of our overall kingdom, once a year, give a tribute. Pay us money once a year. That's it. So in order to make sure you pay it, we're going to take your son captive, and he's going to live with us now. So, you know, if you don't pay, well, we got your son. So they take his son at eight years old in 461, and his son, Theodoric, there's a lot of names with Theo at the beginning, so it gets a little confusing, goes to Rome and they treat him great. They teach him like how to read and write and do math. And like he ends up being uh, like very educated and treated really, really well by the Byzantine Empire. So, and he also gets Roman citizenship. Uh, and that's like a big thing at the time. So by 470, he goes back home. So he spends nine years in Rome 
learning, having a great time as a captive. <laughs> but uh, he goes back and they become really buddy-buddy with the Byzantine Empire. So whenever there's like a, a somebody coming to fight them, you know, the Ostrogoths and the Byzantine Empire, they're helping each other out a lot. Then all of a sudden there's a new uh, emperor, this guy named Zeno. And he's being attacked by another Germanic tribe called the Thervingi tribe. And the Thervingi tribe basically attacks him. The Ostrogoths help the Byzantine Empire defeat this guy. And they say, oh, we're going to make the Ostrogoths something known as the Fodorati, which is like um, they're going to pay them extra, give them a lot of goods and services. And all they have to do is help them fight their wars. And they assign them to the eastern border. But all of a sudden, uh, Zeno goes back on his word. And instead of giving it to his friends, the Ostrogoths, he gives it to his former enemy of the Thervingi tribe. And so the, the kid, the uh, Theodoric, who just went to fight side by side with them, was a little pissed off because he just fought in order and he just got this title. And then they take it away and give it to the people they just fought against. So he was pissed off. So he started to do a lot of raids and he started to like um, terrorize and uh, pillage a lot of different areas in Greece. So Zeno had to figure out what he's going to do about this because, you know, uh, he doesn't need this guy as a loose cannon. So he makes him a Magister Militum uh, Presentalis in 484. So now the guy, he's like, okay, I'll take the title, but I'm not going to stop raiding and pillaging. I'm going to keep doing that to your empire. So Zeno's like, what am I going to do? So he has an idea. <clears throat> Zeno has another enemy. This guy um, named Odiacer, who has conquered Italy. So he's like, okay, how about you and your people? You go conquer Odiacer, and if you win, we'll give you Italy. So it's like, no matter what, Zeno's going to win. He has two enemies. So he has one enemy fight the second enemy. So uh, uh, the uh, Ostrogoth leader, he's like, okay, I like it. He goes marching down to Italy, and he starts kicking butt. And next thing you know, um, Odiacer, the king in Italy, goes and he hides in Ravenna, the capital city. And there's this guy named Tufa, his general, who surrenders to the Ostrogoths. So uh, Theodoric says to him, okay, you want to surrender? You want to be on my side? Go kill your former king. And, you know, this was in 488. And the guy says, yeah, I'm going to kill him. And he leaves with his life. <clears throat> but then he ends up betraying the Ostrogoths and siding with his old king again. So now in 490, the old king, Odiacer, he starts to sneak attack all these different places where the Goths were, the Ostrogoths were. And he started to really make a good impact until the Ostrogoths called their family, the Visigoths. Visi means Western, Ostro means Eastern. They're the same family, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. So combined, they're able to defeat the um, Odiacer. He hides out in Ravenna once again. For three years, they can't get to him. But finally, after three years, they can defeat that city. And Odiacer is like, okay, I get it. I get it. You know, like you win. And he gives to him a treaty. 
he says, let's split Italy. Let's, you know, just coexist. And uh, the Ostrogoths say, okay, I like it. Let's have a banquet and come together as like a, a family. So on March 15th, which, you know, you might know from Shakespeare, not a good day. They hold a banquet in 493. <clears throat> it's supposed to be for peace. So Theodoric, he gives a toast to Odiacer, the king who he just defeated, and they're going to split the nation. And then after he toasts to him, he murders him in front of everybody. And then he orders his men to kill all of Odiacer's men. So he has a banquet in order to save peace and you know safety. But then all of a sudden he goes and he kills every single person like from the other guy's kingdom. But now there's no war because he, he you know, so the bright side, <laughs> the bright side of things, there's no war. And as king, actually, um, in that year, uh, he makes equality. He says the Romans and the Goths, no matter what your race is, everybody's equal in the kingdom. And he also was known for his um, peace. He gave, um, he wanted there to be no religious persecution. So you could be whatever religion you wanted, and it was fine by him. Um, from 493 to 526, he ruled Italy. The Ostrogoths ruled Italy for that time under peace and prosperity. <clears throat> Even though the, um, the Byzantine Empire was a little like pissy at him because of their history, they never actually made any actions against him. And when he died at 72, he named his grandson to be his heir, but his grandson was a baby. So now his daughter, the grandson's mother, had to reign. And everyone was really pissed off because they didn't want a woman as a leader. And she also became friendly with Justinian, who was the uh, Byzantine emperor king. She wanted peaceful relations with him, especially because he just destroyed the Vandals not long before but then her baby died the son died and now she's just a queen and she has no right to the throne so she gets really nervous so she writes a letter to the uh just uh justinian and says i'm gonna give my throne to my cousin uh instead this guy she gives the crown to her cousin and she's like i'm gracefully bowing out i don't want any issues so uh Theo Dahad, her cousin, who is now named King, she feels like, okay, we're at peace. He has her sent to a place called Lake Bolsena, and he has her murdered in 535 AD. And because of this, Justinian, who's like, you know, we had a good relationship before, and then you go and, like, murder this woman? You know what? You guys are annoying. We just destroyed the Vandals a couple years ago. We're going to come after you. And that's when uh, he sent his people down in order to fight 536 they were able to conquer some 540 they got the capital they got you know the pushback in 546 and 547 but eventually by 553 the uh, byzantine empire was able to destroy the um the ostrogoths 100 so amazing history that was the boiled down version but i was intrigued i was amazed by this I hope I gave it justice. Wow. It's probably so refreshing to get to read the actual history. <laughs> it was amazing. It's And it's a lot more interesting than the made-up version that they told us. <laughs>
The made up version was so simple. Like, oh, they were destroyed. Oh, they were destroyed. No, it wasn't just like that. It was complicated. No. There were there were murders and there were fairs and there was <laughs> war. It was all so complicated, you know? Very amazing. Wow. Oh, I think uh, I'm gonna take you off, Tony. You can come back in. You can come back in when you're ready, young lady. <laughs> She's in timeout. <laughs> Boom, baby. Boom, baby. Boom, baby. Boom, baby.